You can speak of God as a father, as a friend, as a helper, as one who loves us even in despite of our folly and our sins, our weaknesses, and their faces will light up. But speak before the same group of people about a God who judges and a frown, and they'll shake their heads. They find it repellent and unworthy of God to consider him a judge or to become a universal judge. Well, there are a few things stressed more strongly in the Bible than the reality of God's work as a or the judge. Let me give you some specific examples. First, let me read a few uh, general statements. For example, Abraham made the statement in Genesis 18 and verse 23. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He recognized God as the judge of all the earth. Psalm 82 and 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth. Hebrews 12 and 23, God, the judge of us all. And so we can go back to the Garden of Eden. Here were Adam and Eve given responsibilities, told what to do and what not to do concerning a tree, and they disobeyed it. And God judged them. God cast them out of the garden, placed a curse upon them. Time went by, and in Noah's day, the people became so violent that every imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6 and 5. And what did God do? Well, he judged the whole universe. All of the people, except eight, who were spared at that day. What about Sodom and Gomorrah that we mentioned this morning? When we turn to Isaiah 1 and 9, Isaiah is talking about the remnant of God's people in Isaiah's day. But he compares it to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, if God had not spared a very small remnant of, of us, then we would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained down hail and brimstone and destroyed completely. We were looking at a documentary two or three nights ago, or days, whenever, talking about where Sodom and Gomorrah was. They've not been able to locate it. They generally think it was on the southern end or tip of the Dead Sea. But God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah so completely that they don't know for sure where it is or was located. And when they were in Egypt, God was ready to deliver them out as a judge. He sent ten plagues upon the Egyptian people. And you remember finally after these plagues were taking place, the people said to Pharaoh, the God of these people is destroying us. And he was through, their, through his judgments. Then what about the golden calf? Moses was up on the mountain 40 days and nights, and they built this golden calf and worshipped it. When Moses came down, God said, well, you find out who's going to repent. You find out who's going to be on your side, and the rest of them put to death. And 3,000 refused to repent, and God's judgment upon them was they were put to death by their own brethren. What about uh, Nadab and Abihu? God's judgment. Leviticus 10, 1 and 2 tells us the judgment that God brought upon them. Here they were being consecrated as priests. Aaron was appointed the first high priest. There was 
uh, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and uh, Ithamar were the first two. Because they brought that which God had not authorized were wiped out. God directly sent the fire upon them. That was a judgment. And people think uh, that is repellent. Unworthy of God. And yet this is the truth. We think about after this, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on. Those who rose up and they said, Moses and Aaron, you've taken upon yourselves too much authority. We're Israelites as well as you. And what did God do? He said, separate from these people. And they and their families at their tents were buried alive. God just opened up the earth. He did it. It was his judgment. Well, we can think about Israel. When they came into the land of promise, God said, now, if you don't obey me, if you're not faithful to me, you're going to be carried off into distant lands. Well, we read about the judges where God allowed the nations round about them to judge them, to oppress them, till they cried out for deliverance and were saved. But eventually, after God sent prophet after prophet to his own people, they refused to repent. God allowed the Assyrians to come in and to carry off the ten northern tribes. His judgment upon them. About 116 years later, the Babylonians came upon Judah, Benjamin, carried them off into captivity. God's judgment upon the people. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, the last verse in Ecclesiastes. God shall bring every work into judgment with every hidden thing, whether it be good or evil. And we have that promise elsewhere as well. When we get to the New Testament, we find that Jesus' Jesus's teaching and warnings was that God was going to judge the Jewish nation because they were rejecting his son. And we know that happened in A.D. 70. There were individuals like Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, Herod in Acts 12, who, because they disobeyed God, were individually judged directly by God. And in the book of Revelation, we read about the trumpets, the seven trumpets. These were warnings. What God was going to do in judgment. And then about the twelve, the seven bowls of wrath that God was sending upon them. And yet, some contend, without mm, studying the Bible a whole lot, that the Old Testament emphasis upon God's action as a judge fades into the background when we get into the New Testament. But far from being reduced or diminished, it is intensified. The entire New Testament is overshadowed by the certainty of a coming day of universal judgment and of an offer by God to us sinners, to all sinners, to be able to avoid the certainty of that judgment and the wrath that God sent. Jesus is going to be that judge. Jesus made the statement in John 5.22, The Father hath given all judgment to the Son. And there are a number of places, a couple of them are. In Acts 10 and 42, 2 Timothy 4 and 1, we read about Jesus Christ, 
the judge of the living and the dead, and others that we'll notice later on. Well, if we're going with the Bible, we're going to have to accept the fact that God is a God of judgment, that he deals with his people to judgment, and there will be a universal judgment. Let's talk about four thoughts concerning a judge. One is the judge is a person with authority. In the Bible world, the king was the supreme judge because he was the supreme ruler with authority. And when we think about God, in contrast, or maybe following the same thought, he created us, he made us, he owns us, he sustains us by the word of his power. Does he not have the right to dispose of us in his way? Does he not have the right to give us a law? And then to reward us whether we obey or whether we disobey that law that he's given us. In our society, in America anyway, our government is divided into three departments, as you know. There's the legislative, the executive, and the judiciary. They are to serve as a counterbalance upon the other. Well, God... is the sole lawgiver, and he's also the judge. He doesn't need some other one to uh, counterbalance him. And so the judge is a person with authority, and God is that judge. Secondly, the judge is a person who identifies with that which is good and right. When we turn to Hebrews 1 and 9, we read that God loves righteousness and hates iniquity. And so our God identifies with what is good and right. Thirdly, the judge is a person of wisdom. He has to have wisdom to be able to discern the truth. For example, in human cases, in the courts, sometimes without a jury, the judge has to take charge, and he has to to ascertain the facts in the case before him. He has to be able to question the different parties, cross-examine them, detect lies, pierce through their evasions, and so forth. But when the Bible pictures God judging, it emphasizes his omniscience, that God has all the knowledge that there is. He has the wisdom. He's known as the searcher of hearts, the finder of facts. And so nothing can escape God as judge. I might be able to fool you. You might be able to fool me. But God knows us and he can judge us for what we really are. Let me give you three scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, it says, For we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. Now what's the idea involved in manifest? More than just appearing. We're going to all appear there, that's right. But the idea of being made manifest is being made open. Open to be made known and visible. Like Romans 2.16, God will judge the secrets of men because our hearts are just open to God. And listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 and 5. 
He says, Wherefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest, and we just talked about being made manifest, the counsels of the hearts, and then shall each man have his praise from God. Fourthly, a judge is a person of power, enough power to execute the sentence. In our modern society, as we've mentioned before, the judge will pass a sentence, but another part of the judiciary department will, will render the punishment. will carry it out. But God is his own executioner. God's not only the lawgiver, the one who passes the sentence, but he's the one that sees that it's carried out. God's work as judge fits his character. It blends in with his moral perfection, his righteousness, his justice, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his wisdom. And here is another aspect of his judging, and that is retribution. Retribution is to pay back, is it not? That's at the heart of God's judgment. The rendering to men what they deserve. To reward good with good, that's the way God does it, in evil with evil. It's just natural to God. And God will judge all men according to their works. You remember in Revelation 20 and 12, the books were open and judged according to their works. Let me read again, or another place. This is in Romans 2, and I'll start at verse 5. Read to verse 11. How God is going to judge according to our works. Now, I'm talking about Christians as well as those who are not Christians. But we'll explain a little bit more on that a little bit later. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up for thyself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his works, to them that by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and incorruption, eternal life. But unto them that are factious and obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness, shall be wrath and indignation, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that worketh evil of the Jew first and also of the, Jew, the Greeks. But glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. For there is no respect of persons with God. Retribution. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, I quoted just a little bit a while ago, and maybe I better go ahead and say this. For we must all be made manifest, before the judgment seat of Christ, to receive the things done in the body, whether it's good or bad. Now, this is addressed to Christians. We're Christians. 
It was addressed to the church in Corinth. This is a church in Byron. So this is just as applicable to you and me as it was to them. Now, I'm not, I don't believe the Bible is teaching. I know it's not. God saves us through his blood. Not through our works. But God is still going to judge us by our works. And that's what he's talking about here. We must all be made manifest to give an account of the things which we have done, whether it's good or bad. Romans 14 and 12. Again, this is addressed to Christians, to the church at Rome. For each one shall give an account of himself before God. Not to find out whether we're saved or lost, because we're going before God under the blood of Christ. And that has already been determined if we're faithful. But still, he's going to hold us accountable. Being saved, we still have all of these works to give an account for. And I think it's talking about, and I was going to talk about this a little bit later on, the different degrees of glory as those who are lost subject to different degrees of hell. God will see that each man, sooner or later, receives what he deserves, if not here, then in the hereafter. And this is one of the basic facts of life. How often do you hear people say, well, there ain't no justice? Maybe with better grammar. There ain't no justice. But the character of God is the guarantee that all wrongs will be righted someday. When the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God arrives, retribution will be exact. A part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Let me ask you this question. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good being? Would a God who made no distinction between Hitler and Stalin on one side and his own saints on the other? Not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. And moral indifference would be an imperfection in God. I think we all recognize this. That the reality of divine judgment must have a direct effect upon our view of life. If I believe that at the end of the road I'm going to have to give an account for the way I live, then I want to live better. And there are a lot of people in the world who don't believe they're going to have to give an account or that God will sort of overlook. In fact, when you turn to Psalm <clears throat> excuse me, 10, verses 11 and 13, the wicked are here being quoted, and they're saying that God doesn't see. God has his face, his, his face hidden, and God will not require it. Well, that's the way the wicked want to look upon judgment. But God will require. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of folks out in the world who've heard these Bible warnings, you know, admonitions. A day of judgment's coming. But they don't expect God to be at the end of the road or the end of their life and to hold them accountable for their deeds, their misdeeds. The doctrine of divine judgment 
and particularly of the last day universal judgment, is a revelation of God's character. Let me use the words of Leon Morris. The Christian view of judgment means that history moves to a goal. Judgment protects the idea of the triumph of God and of good. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil shall last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. There ain't no justice. Well, if they're not now, there will be. That's God's nature. And that is a part of his judgment. Well, who's going to be at the judgment? Well, I guess everybody is. We read in Matthew 25 and 31 that when Jesus comes with all of his angels with him, we're talking about the good angels. They're going to be there. But we read in Jude, verse 6, that the fallen angels are going to be there and they're going to be judged. And so that we're, that's what we're talking about now. Who are going to be there to be judged? And this verse tells us the fallen angels. And angels that kept not their own principality, but left their proper habitation, <clears throat> he hath kept in everlasting bonds under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So all of these who revolted with Satan are going to be there. They've not had the opportunity to repent as man has. Maybe it's because they were in God's presence all the time, but they're going to be judged. Who else is going to be in the judgment? Well, all mankind, all human beings, whether saved or not. In Acts 17, 30, and 31, Paul says, The times of ignorance God hath overlooked, but now he commandeth men that they all everywhere repent, inasmuch as he hath appointed a day in which he shall judge the world in righteousness. By the man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God has appointed a day, and that's why he says all men everywhere need to repent, because we're going to be in that judgment. And the judge will be Jesus Christ. What will be the standard of the judgment? Well, certainly it's going to be the holiness of God. Romans 3.23 says that we all sin and we fall short of the, your version may say, the glory of God. And that's right. But what about that glory meaning the approval of God? Because we sin, we fall short of his approval. It's our sins that separate us from him. It's our sins that caused him to send his son to save us. And so the holiness of God himself will be the standard of judgment. But retribution, a part of God's judgment, demands death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's a reward for sin. And so the grace of God 
has responded to man's needs. Titus 2 and 11, the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation unto all men. It's available. Everybody can come and respond, appropriate the grace of God, and be saved. But it's up to the individual to make that choice. The Lord draws us. He attracts us. Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. So that we can be saved. So that that which separates us from God can be blotted out in having the forgiveness of our sins. And so who will be those on his right hand and those on his left hand? Those who have committed themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, have obeyed the gospel, have lived faithfully and worshiped God faithfully in his family until death. Who are those on the left? Well, the rest of the folk. Those who've had an opportunity to live as God wants us to live, to obey the gospel, to have the grace, the blood of Christ, to forgive us of our sins. And so everybody's going to be there. Entrance into heaven or hell depends upon how we respond in our lifetime. Now, we mentioned a while ago about different degrees of punishment, different degrees of rewards, and I've got a dozen scriptures here. Um, I won't take the time to, to go. We'll say that for another lesson. But every deed which a man has ever performed, every word which a man has ever spoken, every thought he has ever conceived, and every ambition that he has ever cherished, every motive that has ever prompted him to action or to inaction, will be laid bare before himself and, for, and before everybody else. Because that's when the books will be opened. The books that have a record of all of our lives, every word, every thought, every action, every motive, every ambition. In other words, the complete record of each person as this record exists in God's omniscience. He knows, and he'll bring it before us. There's only one thing in life about which each man can be absolutely certain, and that is that he must eventually come before God in judgment. One thing more essential than anything else, prepare for that judgment. And that comes by bearing, by Responding to Jesus by obeying him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 tells us that though he were a son, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them who obey him. And so obedience is required. Jesus said in John 8 and 24, Except ye believe that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. And so we have to begin by believing in Jesus. Having such faith that we'll be willing to commit our lives to him. Turn our backs on our own selfish ways, our own sins. As we've quoted from Acts 17.30, he's commanded men that they all everywhere repent. And so repentance follows the faith that we have in the Lord. Confessing that faith, Romans 10, 9 and 10, and also being baptized. And by baptism, the Bible teaches it is an immersion in water 
for the forgiveness of sins. Anything that varies from that is not biblical, not scriptural, not acceptable. It does not put us into Christ. And so these are the steps that we do in obedience to Christ that brings us into his reconciliation, that brings us salvation, that gives us the hope of living with him eternally. If you've not obeyed the gospel, if you've not completed your obedience to the gospel, we're going to sing a song to encourage all who've not. Think about it. Consider it. A day of judgment's coming. And when we leave this life, if the Lord hasn't come, if he still tarries, we're going to go on the right side or on the left side, depending upon what we do with Jesus now. And we'd like to encourage you to surrender to him with all of your heart as together we stand and sing.